Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, I would like to thank our sponsors. First to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E to learn more. Thank you also to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode. Vave believes that personal ultrasound is the future of medicine with an aim to empower both clinicians and patients. From an affordable wireless device to the industry's first all-inclusive upgrade plan to built-in support with Vave Assist, their mission is to move the needle on ultrasound use in every clinical setting. Find more information online at vavehealth.com. That's V-A-V-E health.com. This is a remarkable episode. I am delighted that it is actually airing when it is airing. This is one that has been in the works for months and through trial and error and wildfires and an election season, we are finally here. Dr. Utibe Essien and Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith take over Explore the Space for, I'll just say it's, it's just one of those conversations. It is unbelievable. The thing that I like the most about it, and I certainly don't want to step on any of this conversation... This is a titan of medicine being interviewed by someone who is on that same road, but also looks up to them as a titan of medicine. And to just feel that dynamic and to be in that space with Dr. Essien and Dr. Corby Smith, it's really special. I'm beaming as I say this. This is really wonderful. I am delighted that this episode is coming out. I do obviously want to acknowledge this is the first episode of Explore the Space that has aired after the election. For those of you who are fans of the show, you know how much energy our whole Explore the Space universe put into the election season. It's great that we're now on the other side of it. I hope that this episode can help to restore a little bit of a sense of normalcy, but obviously to all of you who contributed so much sweat and energy and tears and your own personal treasure and all of those things that help drive towards a result, thank you. To all of those of you in medicine who got engaged and activated for the first time, who registered to vote for the first time, who maybe helped a colleague get to vote for the first time, thank you. As always, too, I would like to invite everyone, please do take a look at the archive of Explore the Space podcast, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at ETS Show, and please feel free to email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. And if you have the opportunity to subscribe to Explore the Space podcasts, wherever you like to download your shows, that really helps us out and definitely leave us a rating and a review. It's great to be back. It's great to have another episode up. And I just couldn't be happier with the conversation between two incredible physicians, two extraordinary scientists, and two just wonderful people who are creating new roads and conversations like this just reframe things in a way that is 
exciting, refreshing, and challenging all at once. So without further ado, Dr. Utibe Essien and Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith. Hey, everyone. My name is Utibe Essien, and I'm an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. I have to thank Dr. Shapiro for lending us his platform on the Explore the Space podcast to have what is going to be an incredible um, discussion with one of my favorite people in the medicine, in medicine probably in the world, um, Dr. Giselle Corby-Smith. So Dr. Corby-Smith, for those of you who for some reason do not know, is the Keenan Distinguished Professor in the UNC, University of North Carolina, Department of Social Medicine. And she's the director of their Center of Health Equity Research. She has so many accolades and awards, which some of which we'll talk through during our time together. But um, I'll start with a little caveat or story, rather, that when I first met her back in 2014, I was straight up like, I'm meeting Beyonce, Obama, like <laughs> awestruck <laughs> attitude. I remember asking my mentor from med school, Dr. Gonzalez, like, oh, can you introduce me? Like, is it okay if I, I go up there and say hello at this, my first Society of General Internal Medicine meeting? And you could see like the crowds lining around her just to talk to her because again, she's so incredible. And I feel so grateful that six years after that, here we are chatting it up on a podcast and just finished getting our first paper together accepted. And um, okay. it's been a long journey for me being this awkward, shy guy who was trying to <laughs> say hello to, to you. So thank you for taking the time to chat, Dr. Corby Smith. I am so glad to be able to talk with you. I think, you know, one of the universal truths is that if you think you know, that social awkwardness is just part of being a physician in medicine. So it's like we all have a little of that and you just got to figure out how to how to channel and get, move through that. I think that's probably true. That's very true. <laughs> <laughs> so before jumping into your story, because I got to, I know a little bit about it, but I want the world to hear it as well. Um, I love starting every conversation with my teams and learning about wins, especially during these crazy times when uh, there is a lot of sadness in the world. Um, it's always great to kind of start off with highlight of the week, favorite moment, uh, inspiring tale, I guess, so to speak, from the past week. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think I'm going to incorporate that going forward. So I would, I, if you'll allow me, I'm going to go back a little bit more than a week to maybe the last two weeks. Um, we just were awarded um, UNC and Duke, the coordinating center for the RADx UP grants, which are the rapidly accelerating diagnosis for COVID-19 testing in underserved populations. And that feels like um, a huge win, primarily because my collaborators, Mickey Cohen-Wolkowitz and um, Warren Kibbe and myself as PIs, really decided we, in this coordinating center, we were centering the community. And in everything we do and that felt, it feels like it can be potentially really impactful. Um, and so I'm excited to be able to contribute in this way, in this time, in this crazy time, to center the lives of individuals who've been historically marginalized in this country. So that feels like a huge win. So I'm excited That's about really that. That's awesome. That's so great. Congratulations. And obviously you. you guys are are killing it down in the research triangle. So um, congrats on PIing, co-PIing that work and looking forward to learning more about it. 
So again, I just, I feel like I've heard and know some of this story. You shared a little bit about your journey during your SGIM presidential plenary talk last year, um, reminding me just how connected you and I are in our journeys. And again, would love to kind of have you share a little bit about what brought you to where you are today. Yeah. Um, well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and it's the old Brooklyn, not the new Brooklyn. <laughs> there wasn't a Target on Atlantic Avenue then. <laughs> and Bed-Stuy was, was the stuff of movies from Spike Lee, right? So, yeah, I grew, I went to a high school that was um, rated, the, had the highest crime rate in New York City the year I graduated, had the highest reported crime rate. Because those of us at Tilden believed that others had higher rates, but we were better at reporting it. <laughs> so <laughs> I was a skeptic. I was a stat skeptic even then. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And you know, went to went to college and was woefully unprepared. Um, I had made it through. I was telling my kids last night that I made it through just by not being a bad kid, you know, mm. not, not acting out in class and just doing enough work to stay under the radar. <laughs> Medical school in the Bronx, that really was um, just a pivotal moment for me in terms of seeing, well, sort of witnessing and living through the HIV, the birth of the HIV epidemic um, and seeing the toll it took, not just on our patients, but on our colleagues. We had colleagues who became who were visibly HIV positive, and it was um, it was just heartbreaking. And I think that my time at Einstein and at Monty just really was again one of those inflection points where you make a commitment, even if it's not completely conscious, to the care of of, of people that are have been historically marginalized in this country. And um, did my training at Yale, and <laughs> I remember being on the wards and being a loud mouth about the care that I saw people getting that I felt was unjust. And just, I felt completely compelled to let everybody know this. And I, one of one of the attendings pulled me aside and said, you know, you don't necessarily want to be seen as an angry black woman, which I thought was hilarious because she was the angriest white woman I had ever met before. <laughs> and I was like, really, you're telling me this? <laughs> Because um, she was, you know, she was just as strident about the inequalities that w that we saw. But I wanted to try to do something more about it. And I remember, um, I don't think I was a chief resident yet. I remember as a resident, Nikki Lurie came to give a, um, an invited lectureship. And she talked about um, vulnerability and race and social class and some of her research that she was doing around Medicaid expansion, um, even back then in, in um, Medi-Cal, I think, in California. And mm -hmm. I was blown away that people could actually study this and could make a career out of it and actually could even name what it was mm -hmm. um, because it really wasn't even a name for health disparities work at that time. Yeah. Um, and I thought, wow, okay, so this is a possibility. Um, and as a chief resident, I tried to do a little project to uncover what I saw as the bias around amongst my colleagues. It didn't go very well, but it definitely pointed me in a direction to that this is something that could happen. This is something that I could do. I joined the faculty at Emory, um, at Grady, 
which was just an amazing place. Anybody that works at Grady could be anywhere else, but it's the commitment to that population that draw people there. Um, and that sort of camaraderie was really a beautiful incubator for, for some of this work. And I really wanted to, to learn and to study more about the doctor-patient relationship and what was happening in that relationship and how that manifested in health inequalities. And I was dissuaded by my colleagues who had more research. I had no research experience at that point, who had more research experience and said, you can't really understand what's happening. You can't study it. There's no way to really get into the clinical encounter to study it. And I believe them. Um, but at that time, people were, it was right around the time of the NIH Revitalization Act, and people were really remarkably callous and uh, to a point of being vitriolic in the scientific press, in the scientific um, publications about having to include black and brown people in their studies. And I was like, well, if they're going to publish this, it must be easier to study, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, they're just saying it right out here. It's all mm -hmm. published mm -hmm. about, you know, what I saw as sort of at looking in hindsight, sort of a racist approach, racism in medicine, really. Mm -hmm. um, and so I followed that line. I was able to get grants. I went back to my chair of medicine, Ralph Horowitz, when I, at Yale, who told me I needed to get some research training before I left Yale. And I didn't believe him. And then I saw him at a meeting. I think it was at an SGIM meeting. And I said, Ralph, you were so right. <laughs> Can you help me? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he's like, you know, I have, they have these new diversity supplements out. Why don't, we have an R01. Why don't you, you know, write one of these and get a diversity supplement. And I, so I got one of those. It took a while because I had no idea what I was doing. And Ralph, mm. Ralph and his team was busy. But that was sort of the lifeline, one of the lifelines that were thrown to me to help me on, on this path. And yeah. And then so I got the diversity supplement and I got a K. I had heard about these Ks that were new on the scene. And I said, well, this sounds like a goal. Let me get a K. I didn't knew right. nothing. I had no idea what it was or <laughs> what it would entail. But I was like, okay, I'm going to give myself five years to get a K. If I don't get the K, then I'm out. I, obviously, I'm not cut out for this. It was, this was the bargain I made with the universe. Mm -hmm. um, and I got it actually on the first try um, nice. after, uh, after two years. Yeah. I got the uh, Amos Award um, after two tries. The first time I shouldn't have gotten it. I was so glad that they made that decision. The second time I was barely ready, but I had just gotten the K and they said, you know, well, we like to fund winners. So mm. yeah, we'll take you. And thank God they did. That family, um, extended family of Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been just uh, the, the connections, the connection to such a callous word, the the, the, the family that you become a part of in that mm -hmm. program is really enduring. And some of my best colleagues, even to today, 20 years later. Mm. So, um, yeah, so that's how I started, ended up at UNC when I realized that um, while Emory and Grady were fabulous for the work that I was doing at the time, that I needed an, a, a bit more infrastructure to support the work, um, ended up in UNC and I've been here 20 years, which is crazy to me. This is longer than I lived in my parents' house. <laughs> this is kind of <laughs> nuts <laughs> for me to think it. I've been in one place uh -huh. 20 years. But yeah, it's been a really fantastic place for my work. The department that I'm in, I'm, you know, I'm in social medicine and also in internal medicine. And it's been just an incredible place, interprofessional, interdisciplinary 
place to situate this work and has allowed me to go in a variety of directions and really pushed me to think beyond participation in clinical research and to like, what are you going to do about it? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's fine. You're describing this, but like, what's, what's, what's the game plan? And that's mm-hmm. how I ended up in community engaged research, community based participatory research, which is mostly what I do. Yeah. Uh, which has been some of the most rewarding and incredible collaborations that I, um, I've, I've, I feel like I've, le- I feel somewhat selfish. I feel like I've learned so much more than, than I ever gave in those collaborations. Well, that, that journey is, I feel like the stuff of what many of us hope our careers will be that we, you know, hit it on the first try our K award and get the ABOS award granted. But still what I heard you say throughout that it was, you know, my first project didn't go as well as I had added hope. I probably shouldn't have gotten my Amos award on the second try. And so, yes, I, uh, hear the amazing success that we all can see and uh, visualize, but I also hear the persistence and kind of resilience through through the work. I suspect I can know, understand, appreciate where that probably came from, but can you share a little bit about what what keeps what kept you going in those times when it was like, you know, what this project looks is terrible, and my chief year, I'm not going down this route. I'm going right, to go take right. care of those patients. Well, that chief year, I had I probably some would say was a very productive year because I had my first child. But in terms of scholarly productivity, <laughs> it really sucked. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I am a child of immigrants and there's this, my parents are from the Caribbean and there's, I saw them work. I mean, and my dad had, gave each of us a little saying as we, as we went through our sort of elementary and and high school years. And his quote for me was the race is not for the swift, but for the shore. Mm-hmm. And it was disappointments in high school because I kind of pulled up. It was easy for me. High school was easy because, as I said, you know, I just had to stay out of trouble, show up, do some work. And, you know, I was on the path to valedictorian. And mm-hmm. then I kind of just stopped doing work in, high, in the, my senior year. And so I missed valedictorian by like a tenth of a point and was really disappointed. And mm-hmm. um, my dad, that was, he's like, it's the races for the swift. But base for, is not for the swift, but for the shore. So just stay on your path, keep working hard, persevere, and you'll be fine. Um, and in fact, he's right. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and that I, perseverance, I love- right? I mean, everybody mm-hmm. sees all the all of these achievements, but it's the it's realizing that you have to do it for a purpose. The, for me, the grants and papers were never enough to do the work, the hard work that's required in academics. Um, so I had to, I literally remember thinking, so like, what's the deal? What's driving you to do this? Right. And for me, it's a, what I realized is that papers and grants are the currency of academia. Um, and it's the path by which the voices of um, folks that are underserved or don't have a voice can be brought into the academy. Um, and that's why I do the work that I do is to bring those voices and find a way to bring those voices into places um, where they need to be heard and can shape organizations. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, one of the other ways that I, I see you doing it, this work is through your fellowship through the Robert RWJ or Robert Wood Johnson. Can you share a little bit about that experience and what kept you, again, it sounds like within that family of scholars? Uh, so um, I actually, 
for the first iteration of the Clinical Scholars Program, I was on, I was a faculty member. Well, they had a program at Yale that I kind of knew about, but didn't really participate in. And then they had, they had a program at UNC and I got to be on the faculty there. um, And then got, was invited to be on the National um, Advisory Committee for the first iteration. And then now are sort of leading the latest iteration of the Clinical Scholars Program, which is more about leadership development, which is a fascinating and exciting space to be in because we're integrating leadership development in our program with health equity in a very intentional way um, to build teams of interprofessional leaders who are tackling some of the most challenging problems um, in our country facing health equity. And so it's exciting to see these folks coming through the program um, and even more exciting to see how they've already been so impactful um, since the beginning of the program. Maybe that's a good segue to chat a little bit about your podcast. Obviously, we're recording on a a pod right now. um, And last year, you created this new podcast, A Different Kind of Leader, uh, which I feel like is perfectly embodies your career and what you've been <laughs> to me at least. But I'd love for you to take us through how does a researcher, physician, academician, full professor, mother um, find the time to, a director of a research center, find the time to then create a podcast and uh, what was the inspiration for that and what does leadership kind of more broadly mean to you? Yeah. Thank you for that. So the podcast I'd been thinking about for about two years before, um, and it became clear to me that my colleagues, particularly people who had faced some adversity in their past, either because of what they looked like or who they loved, had almost been burnished by those that adversity within the academy. And their luster was just so, it was just remarkable, the talent that I saw around me. And this really started in the Amos program. But what I have seen, and this is not to take away from anyone else, but the depth of insights and thoughtfulness for leaders that are Black, Indigenous, people of color, um, sexual or gender minorities, um, and is their leadership style and substance is is there's a well there that's so deep and that oftentimes appreciates that diversity in thought, diversity in their leadership, in the teams that they pull together, in their approach to complexity, their strategies in the way that they move in the world. And I wanted to elevate that. Um, I hadn't seen that. I I waited two years because I didn't know how to start a podcast. Um, And, you know, as you said, I had a couple of things that I was working on at the time. (laughs) Um, And then somebody who had heard me talking about actually one of the one of the um, folks in our leadership development programs, like, yo, I've been hearing you talk about this for like two years. When are you going to start it? (laughs) It's like, like, okay, I got called on that. So why don't I go ahead and get this started? And I've been lucky to have an incredible team that I'm working with, Sable and Rachel. And also to, there hasn't been a single person that I've asked that have said no. And in fact, we had, we kind of got ahead of ourselves in our first season. And 
kind of ran out of slots. We asked a whole bunch of people thinking that, you know, maybe 50% would say yes. And then it was like, okay. And then COVID happened and we were like, wait a minute, time out. We all need a break. We had to pump mm-hmm. the brakes then. So season mm-hmm. two starting now, we're super excited to launch. Um, my hope is folks will listen and, and be inspired as I am each time I talk with those, with, with those individuals. It, you know, at the end of the day, it's hard sometimes to think about adding that one more thing, but I'm always refreshed and energized and inspired just to talk with folks who are on this leadership journey. The other reason that I did it is fairly selfish. Um, you get to a point um, within academia as you sort of ascend that you don't have your, these colleagues around you um, mm-hmm. as a racial or ethnic minority. They're, it's far and few between. And I felt like other people probably were experiencing the same thing. And just being able to hear the stories and to have their experiences validated would be helpful. Yeah. And then the third reason is because I've sat in that chair and looked with awe at folks that seemed to have accomplished so much. And it's so important when you're starting out as a leader, um, you're embarking on your leadership journey to know that it's possible um, and to know that folks have experienced those same bumps and that you can do it. Um, There's nothing you can do it. (laughs) That's awesome. And that's my journey towards medicine was literally one first year medical student at Einstein as well, who told me, you know, if I can do it, you can too. And I was struggling through my MCAT and freaking out about my my science GPA. And she totally, completely motivated me in a way that no one else had before. And mm-hmm. I think that it sounds like that's what these conversations are for you as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's my hope is it certainly works for me. I mean, at the end of these <laughs> conversations, I'm like, okay, yeah. Uh, that just validated another experience that I've had. And my mm-hmm. hope is that it also serves to inspire people that might feel that that might need that may need that in, um, in their lives at that moment in time. Yeah, that's great. So what, what, um, what is the future look like for, for someone who is a full professor, one of the very few black women who have can claim that in medicine, who is a director again, like I mentioned of the center and kind of is, recently elected to the National Academy of, of Medicine, like you seemingly checking off all the boxes that young early career um, academicians have. What does what does the next dream job look like or dream opportunity look like for you? Well, that's a great question. So right now I'm, I I'm have the privilege of serving as associate provost for rural initiatives. And mm. um, it's, a I think, an opportunity to, to, I think you get to this place where you're no longer satisfied with the impact that you're having and you feel particularly if you're motivated by the people that you're so that you're hoping this work will serve that you want to be able to have a bigger impact and so i'm i'm excited in this role to be able to sort of support people who are really trying to build partnerships with at least in north carolina some of the most underserved areas in our country i mean our the the place where the geography where my community collaborators live and work is the buckle of the stroke belt in the southeast in, in a rural rural part of our state. And so um, I feel really privileged to be able to support partnerships around the state and to create an infrastructure to, to advance their work and to create new partnerships. So that's that's what I'm working on now. You know, leadership development is another way to have that impact, supporting leaders so that they can really have a systems view 
of the work that they're doing and the opportunities to create systems that are equitable. And, and so that is another thing that gets me excited um, is to find ways to support leaders either through a coach or being a coach or through a, a program. So, yeah, so those are the things that, that are floating my boat now. And of course, the research is always there. And my patients, I still see patients on Friday afternoon, you know, for, for me, that's my first love medicine. That's awesome. The, the, full, the full package, as some, <laughs> some might say. And I guess that that kind of reminds us that, as you mentioned, the research into patients, that we would obviously be remiss to not mention the current moment, quote unquote, that people refer to as, as the um, racial injustice that is occurring around our world. And I think that's really connected you and I together over the last few months, along with um, the pandemic of COVID-19. And as I was writing references for a recent paper, I came across your paper from 2003, talking about distrust, race, and research in JAMA, and um, really talking about these issues that are really now coming to the forefront. And so I wonder how you're thinking about this moment, what it means for health disparities research as a field for early, again, early career researchers, and again, for the patients and communities that are being were hard hit back when you were training or when you were writing that paper and continue to be hard hit today. Yeah. Yeah. 2003 seems like a minute ago now, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Not too long. Uh, yeah. So we're in these syndemics, right? So the COVID-19 pandemic and this racism that's been in our country is actually the fabric of our country. Um, these syndemics that are coming together and actually creating a sum that's worse than the, than each of its parts. I think for many people of color, this has been just an incredibly trying time. Um, and it's exacerbated by the misinformation and the sort of the destruction of trustworthiness within our scientific community. But, but we're seeing um, in sort of the politicization of this pandemic, I think ha- is going to have far-reaching co- consequences for research beyond beyond the, the unnecessary deaths and, Ill, and, and lives that have been lost um, in, in this country. My worry is that as a scientific community, we're not yet clear on how, and on how to and how important it is to demonstrate our trustworthiness. We typically, and one of the things that I would go back now, I guess 17 years ago, and rewrite that paper is to reorient the work to trustworthiness. Mm. And this is, I mean, that paper is a is a product of growing up in a majority culture in 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 science, and so it's oriented towards people of color being distrustful, as opposed to. The fact that as a scientific community, and some would say even a medical community, that we have not demonstrated our trustworthiness in the way that we need to. It's completely, I I remember a quote from the first set of focus groups that I did at Grady around the Tuskegee syphilis study and participation in research. And this this brother said, given the way brothers are treated in, in, um, why would I think that participating in research would lead to anything good for me. And I'm like, it's completely legitimate for people mm-hmm. to not put their trust in an institution that consistently and, and um, persistently is failing them. And right now, the misinformation that we, that's being, you know, the misinformation, con- con- contradictory information 
that we see in our lay press is really is going to be a major challenge and I think it's going to have an enduring impact, unfortunately. Yeah, that's actually something I've never, haven't really heard that it's not just the current moment, which is so powerful, obviously the the millions infected, the deaths, but thinking about its impact on research down the line and this mm-hmm. trust is not just affecting us right now in studies today, but in four or five years when we're trying to recruit again, like what do those similar conversations yeah. look like? And that's such a critical point to bring up. Well, I always want to end on on a note of hope. Again, I have been inspired by you over the last six, seven years that I've got to know you and, and follow your career. I'm so fortunate to have you as a mentor, a colleague and friend. I'd love to know what what is giving you hope in, in these days as, again, the pandemics, the syndemics, however we refer to them as, can really um, start to get to us and affect us? What what brings that joy? What brings that hope as you go along on the day-to-day? Really, this is going to sound fairly trite, but it's my kids. And when I say my kids, I'm lucky enough in this pandemic to have my two nieces with me as well as two of my sons. And they are so savvy. They are remarkable. Uh, my son, oldest son, my middle son is 22. My oldest son's 25, but he's he's in law school now at at, at Howard. Um, but my 22 year old is here. My 14 year old son is here, and my 15 and 17 year old nieces. And when I sit down and hear them talk about politics, about race and racism, they are. I mean, it took me year. It took me probably 10 years on them to be able to have such confident and sophisticated kinds of conversations. I remember last summer I had them for a little while and um, I came back from a racial equity training and was talking with them about it. And I said, you know, they have these for teenagers sometimes too. And they were like, please, Auntie G, we want to go, we want to go. And I was like, wow, okay, cool. That's dope, man. That's (laughs) awesome. So that gives me hope to know Mm. that that they're not starting from the place that I started. They're already leagues ahead of me in terms of the, the really the sophisticated way that they think about race and racism and anti-racism, politics and policy and the, and the current events. Um, it, it's really remarkable. And so that, that gives me hope every time we sit down to dinner together. That's really great. And again, I think parents are saying, well, yes, the younger ones, it's a little rough with that virtual school life, but to have some of the older ones at home when they would typically be on campus or at anywhere else uh, has Mm -hmm. been a blessing. So that's so wonderful to hear that. And I hope they tune in to this pond to hear their mom as on on many of the ponds (laughs) that you're on these days. Thank you again so much, Dr. Corby Smith, for taking the time to connect with us. Thank you, Dr. Shapiro, for lending this platform of Explore the Space. And I'm really looking forward to, to us connecting again soon. Yeah, this was fun. Thank you. Thank you. For sure. Again, after a long day, after a long day, (laughs) feel a lot better now. (laughs) Good, good. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, Yes, before I go, how can the rest of folks connect with you? I I am episodically active on Twitter. (laughs) Not nearly (laughs) as active as you are at GCSMD. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn and much less active there, but that's a goal. Certainly can listen to at DKL Leadership podcast or follow um, the podcast on on Twitter as well. Season two is dropping soon. um, And um, we're really excited about the diversity of 
disciplines that we are having on the show, um, branching out beyond medicine, which was sort of heavy in, in the season one, but really almost all of our colleagues that we're talking with are centering race and their leadership in this moment in time. So I think is going to be pretty exciting for folks to listen to. Very cool. Thanks again. And we'll chat again soon. Alrighty. Take care. Take care. My thanks once again to Dr. Essien and Dr. Corby Smith for this extraordinary conversation. And my deep thanks to both of you for sharing my platform and your incredible expertise, your stories and your insights on Explore the Space podcast. This is very special and I really hope we get to do it again. Thank you to Lori Bedke and Creighton University for sponsoring this episode of Explore the Space. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. And thanks also to Vave Health for sponsoring this episode. That's Vave with a V. Don't forget to check out their site for details on their free virtual ultrasound educational events, otherwise known as hashtag Vave Educasts. The next one is coming up this Thursday, November 12th at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard. Go to vavehealth.com backslash live for more details or find a link in the show notes. To all of you for listening, thank you so much. Look forward to bringing you more great content. If you enjoyed this episode, please do let me know. Please do find us on Twitter and share your insights there as well. I'm at ETS Show. You can email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com anytime as well. Your time listening is so appreciated. Thank you so much. Remember to wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, wash your hands, get your flu shots, take care of yourselves, and we will see you soon. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com. 